Uh, this morning's scripture reading comes from Hebrews 9:24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copied of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Thanks, Mike. You can be seated. I'm guessing for all of us, there are places that have certain significance to us. Places that as you think of them, and it may be the place you call home, the place where you're from. Or maybe a place where you go on vacation. Or maybe a place in nature, or maybe in a state park, in a national park, or maybe it's a certain place in, in a city. Maybe it's a place where there's recreation. Or maybe it's a place that you always would like to go, that you've never been, but you've always thought this would be an amazing trip to take. There are places, there are places where we find a lot of memories. Maybe it is a memorial or a cemetery where it feels like pretty sacred space and causes you to think and causes you to reflect. We're talking this morning about places and places really matter. Places matter. And one of the things that Genesis tells us right, right at the beginning, so God creates human beings in his image. And he puts them in a garden and he puts them in a place a place where they could flourish. And so we're meant to be not disconnected, but connected to a place. And I mentioned places because we're in a portion of Hebrews, really when you go from Hebrews, and Mike read a moment ago out of Hebrews 9, but when you go through Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, Hebrews is taking us through what I think uh, English majors and people that love grammar will appreciate. It's taking us through a series of nouns so what are nouns? Nouns can be described as a person, a place, a thing, an idea. I mean, there's, there's probably more we could say, but that does walk through some of the things that a, a noun describes, a person, a place, a thing, an idea. And what Hebrews 7 through 10 is taking us, taking us through is telling us Jesus is so much better in all of these areas. When you think of who Jesus is as a person, He's a better priest. And so scripture teaches us, Hebrews 7 teaches us that the person who mediates our relationship with God is better. Our great high priest, Jesus. A noun is also, you see on the bottom there, is an idea. An idea. And what we learn from Hebrews 8 that Charlie walked us through last week in looking at God's word 
is that Jesus not only is a better priest, but he also brought a better covenant. Actually, Hebrews says it's a new covenant. Charlie reminded us that a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. And again, so in this portion of Hebrews, we're walking through Jesus is so much better in in the realm of being a, a greater high priest than bringing a new covenant that's better. And yet there in the middle, you see places and things next week, God willing, I want us to look more at the idea of things, particularly the most important thing, and that's the sacrifice of Jesus. And there's some of that in Hebrews 9, but there's more of that in Hebrews 10, the Lord willing, we'll look at next week, the sacrifice, the offering of Jesus himself. But today, if we could kind of zero in and circle that idea of places and particularly Jesus Jesus is taking us to a better place, a better tabernacle. Tabernacle was a holy place. There's actually another name for it would be a tent of meeting. What's interesting is that the the first verses of Hebrews 9, which we're going to look at in a moment, the first verses there, beginning even in verse 1, are going to give us a picture of this ancient tent But Hebrews 8 is going to tell us, like, and Charlie read this last week, that that actually that tent, that tabernacle, is a copy and a shadow. So those are interesting words, right? A shadow. You you actually see some of the shapes. So not too long ago, uh, Canaan and I were in New York City, and we were right at the foot of uh, One World Trade, so the World Trade Center. And we were actually in the shadow of it. And so with, with being in the shadow of it, you can feel a pretty close proximity. You can see an outline It's not the real thing, but you feel it very closely and you can feel the shape and you can appreciate being very, very close to it. So there's a shadow, but also this tent in the Old Testament that we're going to look at in a moment is also called a copy. It's a copy of something. It's a replica. I unfortunately have the, I don't know if it's the habit or just the inclination to collect junk, let's be honest about it, but like little replicas of things. And so one of the replicas I have is a little miniature stadium, a memorial stadium in Norman, Oklahoma, where uh, Oklahoma plays football. And it's little, like not all the details there. Certainly it's nothing to scope or size, but it's something that brings back a lot of good memories of going to a game with my dad, going to a game with Kanan. And yet it's just a picture. I mean, there's no detail there. It's certainly not the real thing. Everything's not put into place, but you have enough of an idea of this is what it looks like. Copies and shadows. What Hebrews 9 does is it tells us, let's look at the copy because if we actually see the copy, we may get an idea of what it's a replica of. And let's step into the shadows and get a little closer because we may appreciate exactly what this is a shadow of. So if you have Hebrews 9, can we begin reading in verse 1? We'll get to the verses that Mike read a moment ago. Hebrews 9, 1 says, Now Israel's covenant had regulations for worship, and it had an early place of holiness. A tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. But behind the second curtain was a second section, so partitioned off. 
And that's called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above this Ark of the Covenant were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Just for a moment, you can see a a diagram. Maybe it helps a little. I showed this a few weeks ago where you see a tent with two part, kind of a partition, two sections. The first part, again, has a couple pieces of furniture and then the second part. And I want us, a lot is being communicated in those first five verses. And I want us to spend some time here. What is that tent? Artist rendering of it, but what is that tent? that was put up in the Arabian Peninsula 3,500 years ago have anything to do with your life in 2022? What's the connection that God wants us to make between that copy, that replica, and the actual things it was pointing to? It's an important question because maybe the connection isn't immediate. But as a replica, as a copy, as a shadow, I think, I think we can appreciate this tent was a special place a place where God would show in tangible ways he was with his people. That's the design of the tent. It was a tent of meeting to show he was with his people. And what are some good words that would help us describe that tent and describe actually what it was pointing to? I think one of the words we would have to use, a good word to describe it, would be the word relationship. Would be the word relationship. The tent was meant to even God come. what I want in it. It's meant to signal that there is a relationship, God's desire for relationship. Even in the first, remember you walk through that first curtain and there is the holy place. In that section, it says there was a lampstand. Well, that would make total sense. The God who says in Genesis 1, let there be light and there was light. Jesus who comes and says, I'm the light of the world, who's wanting to guide us so that with the light, we can see reality, what's true, what's right. It makes sense to us. God is like coming to where we are, saying, let me show you light. There's a lampstand there. There's also, did you see there's a table with bread on it? Which should tell us, which should communicate something important to us, and that is that God it's a symbol, isn't it? It's a sign that God wants to be with us, even around a, I mean, how many, how many good conversations, how much, how, how many people that are important to you have sat down with the meal? I mean, this is, this is where we do life together, where we enjoy being together around bread, around a meal. There's a second curtain. Hebrews walks us through that. There's a incense altar, which again, I wonder if, if we're to be reminded, like taste, sight, now smell even, Our senses engaged as there's an altar of incense. The incense goes up to the Lord. The Lord receives that. Again, it's a place of meeting. But attention is really drawn, not just even to all those pieces of furniture, but another piece of, another article, another something in this tent behind that second curtain. And that's what's called the Ark of the Covenant. We don't use Ark quite in that same way. Maybe it's better for you to think of it as like a, 
a covenant chest or a covenant box where things are put into that are significant and things you don't want to lose and things you want to keep, articles and objects that matter. And this is one of those boxes or one of those chests. And in it are things related to the covenant that God has made. And again, Charlie talked a lot about covenant last week, but those, those reminders, I mean, it wasn't just random stuff put in that box, that covenant box. It was important things. It was signaling things related to the agreement that God had made with his people. So in that box, in that box was, as it's described, a jar of manna. And that that isn't like a timeless thing as much as it's a point in time thing where God saw that his people had no food to eat. And God anticipating, knowing they would need to eat provided for them again and again and again and again and again. So in that covenant box, a box to remind God's people, I keep my promises. It's a a jar of manna reminding God provides. In that covenant box, in that covenant chest, there's also the stick. It's Aaron's stick. And it's meant in many ways to show the guidance. So Aaron is the first high priest of the nation of Israel. And At times there was a challenge of like, well, who really knows what God is doing? Who really speaks for God? And one time in the book of Numbers, it was made explicitly clear. Aaron is the one who's going to mediate a relationship. I'm going to lead you through the staff of Aaron. And so Aaron's stick, it says it it buds in a miraculous event. Just to remind, I mean, people are imperfect. Aaron surely was imperfect, but God is going to lead through Aaron. There's a jar of manna, there's Aaron's stick. But there's also these tablets, these stone tablets of the covenant. So what are we to think of those that? I think we're to be reminded that, is it the Ten Commandments? Is it just that that's just a a taste of a greater law, the instruction that God gave, God telling his people, do you want to live? Do you want to be blessed? Here's the pathway to life. It's not about restrictions and rules that are going to be, you know, I know you would like to live this way, but I'm going to block all that off because you would enjoy that too much. It's not that. It's about there are things that will lead to life and there are things that will lead to death. And I'm going to walk you through the the way that would lead to life. And so in that box, in that chest are two tablets reminding God's people, he's spoken. This is what he wants from us. So the box has a lid, has a covering Some translations say the atonement lid. Others say the mercy seat. But it's it's an idea of here is this. Here is this lid. And it's a place of mercy because blood would be sprinkled on that. And in that moment, the mercy that we did not deserve, God looking at us in a way that we did not deserve, we never would have earned. God shows mercy toward us as blood is sprinkled. It's God reminding his people, I'm going to show mercy, not give you mercy the justice you deserve. But then there are also, did you see the description of two, uh, two creatures, cherubim? So it's some angelic figure and we probably aren't well served by Hallmark's depiction of angels. So if you're thinking of that, don't think of that. Think of something fierce that is guarding things that are most important to God. Some being, whatever it looks like, it is fierce guarding the very glory of God, the very presence of God. So we have, the, we have these pictures with each word, with each piece, with, with each article in these tents, you're moving into something significant, and it's still called a copy. 
It's still called a replica. And yet I think by now you would have to appreciate it's not just a replica. Like it's just not just a copy as if like it's nothing really big there because if this is giving us just a small scale picture, then what does it mean if you begin to enlarge it and say, okay, it actually means God is going to provide for us, not just bread alone, but he is going to provide every possible thing we need. What if this is just a, a small sample, what is reality like? If, if God leading us is symbolized by a stick, then what is that pointing to that has a far greater reality if the mercy seat gives us an idea that God is going to show mercy instead of hammering us with justice? What, what is this pointing us to? You see the appreciation mounting, but before we kind of leave this idea of, okay, what is this, a copy, a shadow, a replica of? I think there's a few more words that we would want to add, and I, we actually pick a few of those up in verse 6. So continue reading with me in Hebrews 9, verse 6. So we got like the furniture in place, the articles in place. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the, that first section, performing their royal duties. But into the second, that most holy place, only the high priest goes And he only goes once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And by this, the Holy Spirit is indicating that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. As long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, but they can't perfect or complete or make right the conscience of the worshiper because they only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So much is there, but I keep going back to a couple words that this describes. And those two words also describe what the tent, what's going on with the tent, and that is separation and regulation. Separation and regulation. So the tent is all about relationship, sure, but it also, I think by the curtain, you realize, okay, there's two curtains and they separate things. They, they say who belongs here and who doesn't belong there. And so there's a separation, there's a distance, and, and we're told why there is a separation. It's because of things being clean and unclean, holy and unholy, sinful and righteous. There's a separation. But there's also regulation. I'm a regulation in that to have relationship with God, there's going to have to be a daily sacrifice. And then there's going to be regulated as this one big sacrifice, this one special sacrifice once a year. And even that's regulated. So the only a high priest can go in there only once a year into that most holy place. And only if he offers first a sacrifice for himself and for the sins of his people, do you see the separation and the regulations? The priests had to be very careful in what they're doing because access was restricted. The separation was real and the regulations were necessary if God's people weren't going to be consumed by God. It's necessary, but the separation and the regulation ends up having so many drawbacks, so many limitations that that tent, as beautiful it was, as, the, as beautiful as the scenery and the, what it's pointing to, the symbolism is, it does tell us there's, there's like a gap. There's a gap because in verse 8, the way into the holy places were not yet opened. Verse 9 and 10, 
according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices offered. They didn't do a complete work to help the conscience of the worshiper. They didn't clear the conscience. Can you, like, can we drill down on that word conscience? A lot of times in in the Bible, the conscience has a lot of overlap with the word heart. So it's kind of the, the mind, the will, the emotions, the feeling. I mean, a lot goes into that conscience. But it also is more than that. So a conscience, some have given, I think, some pretty helpful labels of like a conscience is a monitor. So like the monitor goes off when we sense we're not doing something right. It's a witness in a lot of ways. It kind of gives testimony like, that wasn't the right thing, or, oh, no, that's, that was okay. It's a guide. It helps, us, it helps us discern what is right and what's wrong. It's also a judge because you do something wrong and you know it's wrong and your conscience says that was wrong and that's not okay. And what Hebrews is telling us that you can offer all the sacrifices you wanted to and it couldn't really deal with the conscience. Oh, externally, it would at least give you some hope that some things were dealt with, but it didn't change internally, all the things that were going on. The separations and regulations were necessary, but it could not perfect the conscience. Which that gives me a window into recognizing, yeah, it's a 3,500-year-old tent, but it still is talking about some of the same things, some of the same issues that you and I have. And that is we can go through all sorts of rituals to make us feel better, We can do a hundred external things. One of those may even be coming to church and giving an offering. But does that really clear up the conscience? You see, I think the problems that people in Israel had are the same problems we would have. What's going to go inside and deal with the monitor that's going off saying, you're not doing right. The judge that says, you're guilty, not innocent. What's going to help you with the guide that says, you're going the wrong way. Something isn't okay here. What helps there? And that's a really important thing to help. Because we don't want to just disconnect it or sear our conscience to where we go, yeah, I don't, I don't get bothered by anything wrong I do anymore. We don't, nobody wants to go there. It's, it's so dangerous to go to that place. So we can't like dismantle our conscience. We want that to be clean. All this helps us appreciate when it comes to the relationship. Yeah, God is... God has given us all the signals we need to know that he wants to meet with us. But the separation and the regulation feels, they make us feel very short, like we come up really short of having what we need. We see the limits and I think we're ready to hear the good news. Because good news in verse 11 says, but when Christ appeared, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and now have our, we have our place in mind. We had the, like the, the replica of the copy, but now he goes through the greater and more perfect tent. That's the one not made with hands. That is not of this creation. He entered that tent, the, the perfect one, the heavenly one. He entered that one once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And he thus secured an eternal redemption for it, the blood of goats and bulls and the, sprink- and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. If those could sanctify for like the externals for the purification of the fe- flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? How 
how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God that happens. What should be immediately evident is no longer are we talking about copies and shadows and replicas. No longer now we have stepped into something that is just categorically different. We're not in the miniature scale model. We are now into the realities of the very presence of God. That's what it says. Before his face, this is the holy ground, the most perfect tent, the very holy place where God would meet with his people for eternity. The part of creation that's beyond the scope, like you're not going to be able to pinpoint that on Google Earth. It's it's beyond that. It's not a, a world not made with hands, but only like God makes this. We're going to look more at the offering, and, and you, you heard it, the offering of Jesus himself. We're going to look, God willing, next week into more detail. But just notice, I mean, we sang a moment, thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. What we're talking about is how much more will the blood of Christ do some work here, some almost unbelievable work. It's unbelievable, except for you're told, and I'm told, believe it. Don't doubt it. Believe it. Believe what? Believe that Jesus has secured an eternal redemption. That's what verse 12 told us. An eternal redemption is secured. Imagine, imagine what it's saying is spiritually, we were in slavery to sin, to death, to Satan, to our own flesh, our own, like the the worst parts of ourselves. Enslaved to that. And now you're brought out of that and it's eternal. He secured the eternal redemption so that you're not going back to that. You're never going back to that. You'll never be enslaved to that again. He's brought you out of that. What a promise, almost unbelievable, except for the fact that you're told to believe it. And I'm told to believe it. Not only do we have this eternal redemption, but verse 14 says we have this conscience that's been purified. That we don't even have to go through dead works, useless rituals that somehow are going to say, see God, I'm trying my best on my part here. No more useless rituals that get you like maybe 10% down the road, but never will get you 100%. It's like, it's done. Your conscience has been changed. It's been purified. And now you're free to serve. I mean, the last words of verse 14, to serve the living God. And the word serve there is a worship word, which we're really tempted to think, okay, like, so that means I'm, I'm able to like worship God or serve God at church, maybe to serve God on, on Sundays at church and serve God maybe at church kinds of things. It's a worship word, True. But actually, it's not just meant for what might happen at a, at a church. It's actually meant for us to live our lives in worship. So whatever you do. I mean, 1 Corinthians says, whether you eat or drink, you can do that in service, in worship to the Lord. Whatever your hand finds to do, you can do it to the glory of God. Which means spreadsheets that you manage, reports you have to turn in. God God has designed it for you to offer every detail of life as an offering of worship. The homework you do, the diapers you change, the truck route you're assigned, the people that you manage can be done for worship to the Lord. The the notes you write, the encouraging words you send. We've been free to the point, our conscience purified to say, God, I'm going to offer up my days for you. My life for you. My interactions for you. What a, what a promise. We've been looking at like this very special place and we've moved well beyond the copy now. 
well beyond the shadow. We're not in the shadow anymore. We're actually looking at, at reality here. You think about the regulations that had been laid out before, and now even as we see those words again, we think the regulations, well, my goodness, not daily offerings now, the big once a year offering. Now we have Jesus offering himself once for all. There's no more regulations. The, the regulation is Jesus. We go through him, not a series of rituals in which we're trying to like gain favor and access into his presence. The regulation is Jesus. He's accomplished it all. And what about the separation? Well, the separation, the curtains that would communicate restricted access, now they have been removed. And that means something. It means something because Jesus would say, because that, that, that curtain, the first curtain, and because the second curtain had been removed and you can be in the presence of God, that means Jesus would say things like, go to your father and ask and seek and knock. It's not as if you have to have the curtain and kind of wait your turn. He's inviting you in. Like there is unrestricted access. So come into that because you have a father that welcomes you into his presence. The separation is totally removed and the relationship is opened up so much so that the spirit now lives in you. So much so that God, which this can only be because of his love and mercy, decides to live in human beings. I mean, you know you and I know me. The fact that God would reside in us as weak, as flawed, as sinful, as rebellious, as complicated, as frustrating as we can be. I love what it points to. If you kind of skip down even to verse 24, this is what Mike read a moment ago. For Christ, here's where he's entered. Not into some replica, not into some small tent. He's, he's entered not into the holy places made with hands, but he's actually entered into heaven itself to appear this is what's staggering to me the more I think about it this week as I've read it again and again, to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Hebrews is going to unpack exactly what on our behalf means. What it does mean is because Jesus has gone into the presence of God and we're united to him, we are in the presence of God. We have that kind of access. We have that kind of approach. I think we need to hear it. I think we need to let that do some work on our heart and assure us that that is where we belong in the presence of Jesus. Maybe we especially need work on that if we've always felt like an outsider. And maybe that is you. That for whatever reason, you kind of always, always ask a question internally, if not even verbally sometimes. Like, how could I ever belong. I always have felt like an outsider. Maybe you walk into a room like this and you go, if they knew what I had done, there's something in your past or something done to you that you go, if they really knew the full story, they would know I do not belong here. Maybe it's not even something so much in your past, but something in your present. Maybe you're all too aware that you can't get your act together. Things aren't okay. And you go, I, I feel like other people have this relationship with God that I'll never have. And frankly, I don't deserve to have, but I never will have. I'll always be kind of an, an outsider looking into some of this. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a, a marriage that's become a failure. Or maybe it's desires that are so off and so wrong. You'd be ashamed to even speak of them. 
Maybe it's the dark places of depression that you go to that, that keep telling you, telling you lies that I'm just, I'm never, I'm never going to be accepted before God and with his people. Maybe it's the regrets that communicate, you stay outside. Everybody else can come in, but you stay outside. Maybe you say, I'm not religious enough. I'm not educated enough. I'm not, you fill in the blank, not whatever enough. And so I'll always be an outsider. And I want you to hear loud and clear. The message here is that Jesus has opened up the way so that you and I don't stay on the outside, but we're brought in. This is for us. This is for our benefit, for our access, so that when we enter into the presence of God, I think about all that that means, and I can't even scratch the surface, but it does mean forgiveness means you come in, not stay out, because he's released what he could have held against me. Redemption means I'm not enslaved permanently, but I'm, I'm free to come in. You're free. Come on in. A clear conscience means even now, although it's not perfect and it's not, that conscience isn't perfectly dialed in like it will be for eternity, there's a taste of it. There's a taste of it because the Holy Spirit has worked and begun the cleansing process to where we begin to know that because our priest is mediating a relationship, there's not. I don't have to have these inhibitions with God. Christ is... Like Christ is mediating that, and so my conscience becomes clearer, and I'm, I'm able to live my life in worship and praise. Hebrews has such words of assurance, and I wish, I wish we could even have a one-to-one conversation if you're going, I'm not so sure, because I'd love to talk with you about that, about how you could be sure, because I think Christ went to the cross so that you would be sure. You're welcomed in, not excluded I talk about acceptance and redemption and restoration. It almost could sound to the point of cheap and easy and like, sure, okay, whatever. I hope you don't hear it that way. But Hebrews 9 ends with, actually gets real serious right there at the end. So you go midway through verse 26. It says, but as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice himself. But hear this word. I mean, this is a serious word. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So we've heard the words of welcome, but we also need to hear, we need to hear it loud and clear. There are words of judgment and accountability and responsibility for the words of acceptance that we've received because Christ has, has been offered once to bear the sins of many who he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. You see, in those words, I do hear accountability and judgment and even exclusivity. God isn't like the movie Santa Claus that just can't bring himself to put anybody on the naughty list. God's not the kind of person, we don't live in a fairy tale world. We live in the real world where people actually actually hear this and go, and, and maybe you've been in this category, hear that and go, I don't know that that's so much for me. I don't know that I need anybody. I think I can do God on my own terms. I think I'm, I'm working my way to heaven and I'll get there. I think God will see I'm trying as hard as I can. I'm not sure I need what you're talking about. And God's kind of like, I have this arrangement where I call him if I need him, but I'm just not that interested. I'll keep doing things my way. And then Hebrews 9 says, let's get really clear. All of us, 
will die and meet Christ. And there's a judgment there, and that judgment either will have fallen on Jesus at the cross or will just be left going, God, I kind of wanted to do things on my own terms. And that'll be spiritually fatal in that moment. I want you to hear that because today you can have Jesus as your high priest, access to God, and you can let go of your pride thinking your way is better. What would keep you from doing that? Would you not just turn to Christ, get serious about who you are, relying on him, believing in him? And you go, Chris, I got a lot of questions. Yeah, we all do. I stand here with lots of questions. But I know what Christ has done for me. We started by thinking of these places, these places in our life that make us secure and come alive, connected, places that make us feel Good, sometimes even the places that make us feel small, but even that's in a good way because it's like there's a great big world and God has put me here. Places that make us smile, places that make us never want to leave. And it's pointing to a place. It's pointing us to a place of access. And the access isn't like access into a religious club we call church. The access is into a relationship with God himself, into the presence of God. And that access only comes, Jesus tells us, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the only ones that come to my Father are coming through me. So he's opened up that way very wide. And now we, we either trust him or turn our back on him. But for those who are trusting in him today, I love the description at the end of this chapter. You know what we're doing? We're eagerly waiting for him to take us well beyond the copies and the shadows and the replicas and full enjoyment for eternity in the presence of God. For that we say, like even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the pictures, the patterns, the replicas, the copies, the shadows. Thank you for working so hard, Father, to communicate you want a relationship with us. And we're so stubborn and rebellious, so you tell us again and again and again. For the person that maybe even is at that pivot point in their life of whether they will really rely on you or keep deciding to do things their own way, only you can expose the future and expose our vulnerabilities and welcome us to you. So I pray even in this moment you would save and you would rescue. You would turn, turn us from rebels into followers of Christ. Do all this. You are the only one who can keep us for this life and even going into eternity. And so our prayers are to you. Be glorified, be praised, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.